Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Today, Dr. Newfeld will be continuing his series on the book of Romans entitled The Heart of the Gospel, sharing with us the importance of its background and origin to help us begin to understand some of Paul's foundational teaching of faith and mission. Now, let's join Dr. Newfeld and go back to the Bible. I am hoping that now that we have started studying the book of Romans, that you're excited to get going. I hope you're saying, let's get into verse 1, let's move down the road, let's deal with the big issues that surround themselves with the heart of the gospel. But actually, if you'll be a little bit patient with me, I want to do more background to the book before we get going. Let's find out why this book was written. That's a very important question because if we answer that question well, we'll be in a position to understand what we're actually reading. Now, we know that it was written by Paul. He's the apostle, the man who was a Pharisee, was a persecutor of Christians, then was met by Christ on the road to Damascus, and then called by Christ to be an apostle. This same Paul has written 13 of our 27 books that make up our New Testament. We also know a little bit about when the book was written. According to Romans 16, verse 23, Paul writes, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So we notice that in sending greetings to the Roman church, Paul is greeting them from a number of individuals that make up a church where he is presently staying. So where was Paul when he wrote this book, and what church is he talking about? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, Paul mentions a man by the name of Gaius, and he's actually one of his converts in that church. He was a man that Paul also baptized, and so we know that Paul wrote this book from Corinth, which is a city in Greece. Very likely, Paul was on his third missionary journey. He's making his way to Jerusalem, and it's most likely the spring of the year A.D. 57. We'll come back to why that's important. Now, let's go to Romans 15, 23 to 29. Paul writes, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia, by the way, those are uh, areas in Greece, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they, that is the Greeks, were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them, that is to the Jewish believers. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the Jewish spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what was being collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So what we should see here is that Paul is writing the Roman Christians about a plan that he has. He's going to Jerusalem to bring an offering from Gentile churches, Greek churches, because of the poverty of many Jewish believers. Then he hopes from there to go to Rome and to use the church in Rome as a jumping off place to do a ministry in Spain. Well, why? Well, back in Romans 15, 20, Paul states something which is key for all his ministry. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. So Paul is, in every sense of the word, a pioneering missionary. He's bringing the gospel where there has been no gospel witness 
up till that point. The people where he's going have never heard of the name of Jesus, and that's his calling. Now, the Roman church, of course, had heard the gospel. So why was Paul planning to go there, and why is he writing this book to them? Well, this book was written with a missionary purpose in mind. Paul wanted to visit the church in Rome so that he could use this church as a jumping-off place to do missions deep in the heart of Europe itself. He wanted the Roman church to support him financially, yes, and to offer any service necessary for his vision for reaching Spain. So in a way, this book is a letter in which Paul introduces himself to the Roman believers. They've never met him before. And this is, if you will, a 16-chapter introduction. That's quite a deal. That was one of the reasons why this book is written. But why else? Well, it's also written out of concern for the unity of the Roman church. There's something unique about the church in Rome. Remember I said the date of writing is important? Well, let me tell you why. The church in Rome had a unique beginning. It began without any apostles going to Rome and planting a church. Acts chapter 2 mentions that on the day of Pentecost that there were in Jerusalem visitors from Rome. No doubt these were Roman Jews who had come to Jerusalem to worship on a Jewish holy day, and then they had heard Peter preach about Jesus as the Messiah, and they'd seen the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they had come to faith in Christ, and they would have gone back to Rome, and what else would they do? They met together and they started a church there. And like most Jews, the great struggle was how they should understand their Jewish religion and combine it with their new faith in Jesus. But over time, something amazing happened. Gentiles also wanted to know about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and they heard and they got saved and they joined the church. But what do you do with them? I mean, should they get circumcised? Should they stop eating pork or other non-kosher foods? Well, they didn't know how to solve the problem, but initially, because the Jewish Christians would have been the majority in that church, they would have been leaders in the church. Well, this problem would have been dealt with strictly on Jewish terms. And then came that fateful year, and it was A.D. 49. Uh, There was a Roman historian, and his name was Suetonius, and he described what happened in Rome during that year. He says, and I quote, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius, and by the way, that's the emperor, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Well, here's the question. Who is this Crestus? Well, most historians agree that Suetonius didn't have all his facts right because he didn't really know that much about the religion of the Jews. Kind of like what happens today when newspapers report on what Christians do. They often get the facts wrong. But there seems little doubt that Christos is actually a reference to Christ or to Jesus. So here we are, some 16 years after the resurrection, that we already find a Roman historian living in the city of Rome referring to Jesus and to his followers. That's quite something. Well, what happened was that the Jews who worshipped Christ and those who did not were involved in a great dispute, so much so that the Roman emperor got tired of it and simply kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. They would have been out of that city for seven years, and in those years, the Roman church was transformed to an entirely Gentile church. And then after seven years, the Jews were allowed to come back, but now the church, once founded by the Jews from the day of Pentecost, was now completely run by Gentiles and led by Gentiles. I mean, imagine if that happened in your home church. I mean, can you imagine the hurt? 
uh, the misunderstanding, the arguments that that would lead to, the congregational meetings, oh, must have been an uproar. So it's easy to see how the, the question of what to do with Gentile Christians became one of the most important questions that church actually had. And that led to a new problem. Exactly what is a Christian? And exactly what is the gospel? Well, Paul knows this, and in fact, if we read from Romans 14, we can see he's really addressing this. For instance, in verse 2, he says, one person believes he may eat anything. Ah, that'd be a Gentile, right? While the weak person eats only vegetables. Huh. Well, we can see there's a problem. Some people in the church were kosher and and some were not. And then in verse 6, the one who observes the day, Paul writes. Well, the day he's referring to is the Sabbath day, observed in the Jewish fashion. The person who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Wow. Here you can see Paul is pleading for tolerance between Jewish and Gentile believers. And then if you go forward to verse 17 in that same chapter, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a a way to solve this tension. Get your eyes and your hearts on what is ultimately important. You guys have to learn what the central issue of the gospel really is. And that's what Romans is about. By focusing on the question of what is the gospel— Paul lays a foundation that those things that unite us are so much greater than the things that divide us. I think this is important in in every church in our country as well. I mean, as we all know, Canada has become this nation of people from every conceivable culture. If we're going to reach out to Jews and Greeks and Indo-Canadians and people from the Middle East and from Persia and, and from China and the Philippines and Indonesia, well, the message of Romans is essential. See, Romans was written to teach the nature of Christian truth. Because no apostle had founded this church, this book contains the basic teaching of what Paul would lay down when he founded any one of his churches. So if you wonder what Paul would have taught when he found the church in in Corinth or the churches in the province of Galatia and so on, well, this is it. This book, then, is a book on basic Christianity. This book teaches what Paul would have taught in every single Christian church. And so Romans is a kind of Christianity 101, a course for beginners, if you will, or a course that forms the foundation for our entire faith. What a great foundation to build on, a foundation of truth that impacts every believer and every church. Paul's message is one of unity, one that brings the Christian church together in purpose and in faith and presents Christ to the entire world. As we continue, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand the foundational truths that Paul is sharing with the church in Rome, and in fact, with us. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, your loyalty, your encouragement to this ministry means so much. As we begin a new year of ministry, we've been inspired to break down barriers to sharing the truth of God's Word. Barriers built up by a world and a culture that has increasingly turned its back on the Bible. I also want to make a very special announcement today. We're now able to confirm that Back to the Bible Canada will be hosting an Israel experience this coming October 30th, to November 9th. Joining us, of course, will be Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and special musical guests, the Weebs. 
You can get all the information on our website at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Our tour is limited to 72 guests to keep the group small and intimate, so you'll want to register soon so you won't be disappointed. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, what will we learn when we study the book of Romans? Well, it's a really important question. It's the key question. If you miss this, you're going to miss the meaning of the entire book. I want you to look at Romans 5.19. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, here's the central thing that we're going to learn when we study this book. First of all, we will learn that the great division of humanity is between Adam and Christ. See, many of us today don't understand that. I mean, you may today be dividing up people differently. I mean, you think about the divisions that are based upon race or religion or language or on the basis of sexual preference or between those who want tolerance in the politically correct way and those who don't. I mean, the list of human divisions goes on and on. I remember when I was in university, I had a Marxist prof, and I first learned Marxist ideology from him. The Marxist said that the great division is between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It is the rich against the poor. That's the engine behind all of history. Well, others say, no, it's based upon sex. Men have dominated women for centuries, and that's the great injustice that must be redressed. Others will say, no, it's based on politics. It's the right against the left, and on and on it goes. But all that's wrong, says Paul. The great division of humanity is between Adam and Christ. See, with Adam comes the power of sin, but with Christ comes the power of righteousness. With Adam comes the need for a law to restrain human sin, and with Christ comes grace through faith. With Adam comes the power of the flesh, and with Christ comes the power of the spirit of holiness. With Adam comes death, but with Christ comes life everlasting. See, that's the great division of humanity. All humanity is divided right here between those who are in Adam and those who are redeemed in Christ. We all start as children of Adam, and children of Adam divide themselves in multiple ways, and they wound one another, and they find ways of finding one group more righteous than the next. But when we come to Christ, we find that actually there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all in one camp together. We're equally sinful before God. But Christ alone can atone for the sins of Adam's ruined race. And when you learn that, you'll never pick up a newspaper or see a newscast or see a movie or read a book or talk to a person in the same way. All of life will be divided between Adam and Christ. And that's the radical new perspective we learn from this book. Well, what else is there? Well, we not only learn that the true nature of humanity's division is as it is, we also learn, as I have said, the basics of the Christian faith. And that's what this book is. It teaches us the basics of the faith. In fact, those basics can be divided into four sections. The first section covers uh, chapters 1 to 4. It is what we would call the heart of the gospel, and that is justification by faith. See, the very center of the gospel is this message, Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, the only way to get right with God is by faith, by resolutely trusting him. That he has accomplished in his substitutionary death, his promises, his word. That's the heart of the gospel, and that's what the first four chapters teach us. 
But this message doesn't end there. Having learned the heart of the gospel, Romans then goes on to teach us in chapters 5 to 8 what I would call the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel is freedom from the bondage of sin. The message of Romans is that everyone who has been to the heart of the faith now has access to power. You never have to be enslaved by sin again. Oh, yes, I know, we do struggle with sin. And there are times when our struggle may even seem despairing, so that like Paul, we'll cry out, Oh, wretched man or wretched woman that I am. But we will never end in despair. You have been given, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the power to live the life that was up till now out of reach. You can be extraordinary. You may not know it, but you've already been crucified with Christ once you believe. And when you're feeling your greatest weaknesses so that you feel you can't even go on, you'll find that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. That's the message found in chapters 5 to 8. But again, the message of Romans doesn't end there. Romans next takes us to an interesting next stage. It asks and answers a question all thoughtful people now ask. If this gospel of the righteousness of God is available to all, I mean, why then is there this fight between Jew and Gentile, this division? And more so, why is it that this power of the gospel has not been enthusiastically grasped by everyone? And why, to the most part, do the chosen people, the Jewish people, reject the gospel? And so this now leads to chapters 9 to 11, which I think tell us the progress of the gospel. It tells us how the gospel moves forward. I mean, the answers found in those three chapters are frankly quite amazing. God has a surprising and profoundly wise way of growing the gospel message. It's all about God's sovereignty and God's right to choose whom he wants or without answering to you and I. Chapters 9 to 11 are intended to strip away all of our pride and leave us humbled at our salvation and breathless at the universal plans of God. See, these chapters teach us that God is, in fact, in charge of the growth of his own church. But again, Romans is not quite finished yet. Chapters 12 to 16 will now teach us that there is a lifestyle that's attached to the gospel. In other words, being a Christian finally gets down to the day-to-day details in our life. It has to do with our spiritual gifts by which we serve each other how we treat the other person, how we respond to our government, how we respond to temptation, how we respond to someone who's weak and ignorant in their faith, and how we think about the mission of our life. The result of the gospel means that that our personal lifestyle will be completely transformed, and more so, this transformation of our personal life takes place in community. So what will we learn as we study Romans? Well, I think Romans will absolutely heresy-proof, if you like that phrase, it will heresy-proof our faith. That's because once we get the fundamentals straight, once the foundation is properly laid, once we've mastered Christianity 101, we're in a place where it's very hard to deceive us again. You know, years ago, I had a professor whose name was Dr. Walter Martin, and he taught me this wonderful truth. He said that in some banks, in order to help tellers recognize counterfeit currency, tellers would be given an assignment to handle nothing but real money, eight hours a day without stop, for a full week. And the idea being that once you finally got the feel of the real thing, I mean, you knew how thick a bill was and what its consistency felt like, how money actually smelt, and how it handled through your hands and your fingers. And if you did that consistently, you would always spot a fake. 
You might not know what was fake right away, but something about the thing would just feel wrong. I mean, that's how it is with our faith. Handle the real thing. Read and apply this book, and it actually heresy-proofs our faith. But I think it does more than that. I think this book will change us. It will change the way we think and the way we view ourselves and the way we trust God as well. I don't know if this day, listening to this message today, there's perhaps a young Augustine or a Chrysostom, maybe a Luther or a Wesley here. Perhaps there is. Perhaps today there's a person that God has chosen to touch this nation in a unique way. Then read this book and pray. But I do know this, that God has chosen all of us, all believers, to know his truth, to live his truth, to believe his truth, to obey his truth, and through this truth, to transform the world in which we live. My prayer is this, may this journey to the heart of the gospel utterly transform us, and may we see his hand at work in our day, in our land. May generations to come remember what God has done here, right now, in this time. Oh Lord, I pray. Father, as we continue to study, may this book indeed so radically change our day as it has in days in the past. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again, Dr. Neufeld. Um, as I was listening, I was thinking about how personal this, this letter really is because it impacts my relationship with God. But it's much more than that, isn't it? It really calls us to unity. And, and how would you describe Paul's message in that sense when we, when we live in such a divided, well, not only church, but world? You know, when I think about the need to find unity between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world, I can only imagine what a, what a huge mountain that was to climb. Um, the, the divisions were real. The uh, stories that both sides told about each other were real. The practices were real. And then on top of that, I mean, the Jews would have said, oh, we have a law that forbids us from associating with Gentiles. But somehow the heart of the gospel got them beyond that point. And if that's true, I mean, I've got to believe that if we get back to what is the central message of the Christian faith, there are ways to get beyond all of our disunity even in the church. Well, a great message and so much to look forward to in the days ahead and so much to be revealed through God's Word. John, help us understand what we're looking forward to tomorrow. We're going to talk about why we can trust the book of Romans. When it tells us what the gospel is, it's going to tell us with authority what it is. We can count on it. Why is it that we can count on it? We're going to learn. I'm energized to get started. From what Dr. Neufeld has taught us today, the book of Romans is truly foundational to our journey in Christ. And as we move forward, Dr. Neufeld will help us unpack this profound letter, help us to learn its truth, and then help us to understand the power provided to live it out. So join us tomorrow as we begin to engage in Romans chapter 1 as Dr. Neufeld shares on what the good news is really all about. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Much of our world today is divorced from the love of God and a relationship with Him. It's frightening to know that so many people don't want to connect with God because they don't believe it provides what they need for life. 
at Back to the Bible Canada, we want to become a means to change people's perspective of God and the relevance of His Word. We want to tell the world about a God who loves them unconditionally, an almighty, compassionate, merciful God that desires to have a relationship with them. Join us in making this possible, would you? Support us with your prayers, encouragement, and if at all possible, help us by offering your financial gifts that make this program and all that we do possible. You can make a donation at any time at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.